ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, Minefield listener. Just a quick heads up that the following discussion contains a few adult themes, so please bear that in mind if there are any children listening. Hello, welcome to the best of the minefield for 2023, even though it is now 2024. Of course, had some big shows in 2023, actually, and this, I just, this took us to places I don't think we've gone really before. We try to negotiate ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on the show. I feel like this really did that. It was part of our Not Quite a Book Club series. We'll lead Ali's My Name. Scott Stevens is my co-host on this and every other occasion. Scott, remember this one? Oh, we also did something incredibly risky. We devoted yeah. ourselves entirely to a visual medium and not one that's moving, not one that has any sound associated mm. with it at all. This one was unforgettable for me, Waleed, not just because of the source material. You're going to have to keep listening to find out what it was. But also the fact of having Christus Cholkas, someone who means a great deal to both of us and someone who is a rare and remarkable conversation partner. Um, he, I, I think I said to you after we recorded this show – I can't remember having a guest that was so entirely morally present hmm. in the conversation. And um, this one, anyway, it just moved me uh, in so many ways. And it's one that I find myself hmm, thinking hmm. about quite a lot. Well, with that introduction, let's just dive right in, shall we? Here it is. There are two kind of guiding criteria for these sorts of conversations that we have. One is none of us, none of us involved in this are expert in the thing that we're gathered around. And one of the reasons for that isn't just because, as you put it off air, we don't want to be shown up by someone who knows more than us, but although that may well be precisely the case. Yeah. Uh, it is all about preserving reputation after all. Yeah. But it's also because we don't want to place what it is that you can enjoy, what it is that you can relish, what it is you can cherish about the thing that we're observing together. We don't want to place that in the domain of some kind of specialized knowledge that you have to have in order to be able to, to discern it, to read it, to listen to it properly. In other words, there, this is what just attentiveness can yield. This is what just paying attention and lingering with something, this is what, this is the gain that you can get from it. And that then corresponds to the other thing. We're not trying to moralize or overinterpret pieces of art, whether it be a song or a show or a, a set list or a painting. What we're trying to do is to expose ourselves to this object, to linger in its presence. And I don't know about you, Elite, but the thing that I've found increasingly as we've kind of lingered in the presence of these movies, these television shows, these novels, is that it's not so much us doing the, the interpreting. It's not so much us peering beneath the surface and trying to find meaning in it, but rather our lives end up getting exposed to its unrelenting gaze. In other words, what we're trying to stage here is something like an aesthetic-moral encounter with something that is utterly unlike us. But that the more we look at it, the more we linger in its presence, the more we try to subject our predispositions, presumptions, and prejudices about what this is really all about, the more those prejudices are overthrown. In other words, we try to discover something uh, about it and ultimately about ourselves that we didn't know before. All that I think is important to say because we are looking at something that is, by any accounts, monstrous. This is so far out of the realms of quotidian life, of ordinary human experience. We are coming face to face with darkness in this painting. And what is it that we find? Do we find the darkness looking back? Does that darkness end up revealing something not just about its nature? And I suppose that's one of the questions, isn't it? Does darkness have a character? Is it the absence of something or is it the presence of something else? Um, is there something that we find by looking into this darkness that then resonates with the degree, say, of monstrousness or darkness in us all? The painting we're looking at is the 1823 masterpiece by Spanish painter Francisco 
de Goya, sometimes simply referred to as Saturno, more prosaically referred to as Saturn eating his son. Can we begin, Waleed, with a description of the painting? By this, sorry, you mean describing the actual painting? What you see. Not just what you see, what you notice. Let's just do the broad explanation before I tell you what I notice. Okay, sure. So, and, and play along at home. We're hoping you've done your homework and looked at this. But if not, you could honestly do this in five seconds right now. You may need to change your Google image settings, <laughs> I've noticed, because <laughs> uh, it'll show up on Summer's graphic. But I think you can just say you're happy to view the image. So the main figure, who we're calling Saturno, or Saturn. Mm. Or Kronos in Greek. Yes, is this wild... Emaciated, I think we could probably say. Mm. Certainly dishevelled male figure with long graying hair that's completely unkempt. Yep. Um, He's sort of in a crouched position. Mm. And there is a completely featureless background, really. It's just he's emerging from the black. This is part of um, Goya's Black Paintings series. And we should talk a little bit about the history of the painting and so on. The fact this wasn't, this was an utterly private painting. This was not. Yes intended for public consumption at all. He did it in his house directly on the plaster. And this main figure is holding a body that is not merely lifeless but dismembered. Holding is not the right word. Clutching, squeezing That's right. That's right. this body. The thing you notice here are Saturn's knuckles. So hmm. you look at the knuckles and the the bones of his fingers. Like They are white, a sort of like bloodless because the the blood has been squeezed out of it because he's squeezing this body. Possession, possessiveness is, I think, crucial. That's the thing that screams from the center of the painting. Yeah, which raises the question as to what's being possessed, but yes. And the figure that is there has no arms, at least none that we can see, because they have been torn off. Is bloody, well, especially one arm. One arm completely torn off. One of them is is in the process of being devoured. It's yeah, half eaten. I wasn't sure about that, or whether that was just. Sorry to say it this way, but backstrap. Anyway, heavens. Uh, yeah, well, that makes it more violent if you mm-hmm. say it that way. But either way, Saturno is tearing into this with his teeth, mm. so which are not which are not visible. You can't there. see the teeth. The, the mouth yeah. is just black, but the body is. Is lifeless. The the blood is really clear, not dripping or anything, but just no. clear at the top of the body. And then where that blood gives it gives way to a, a really white sort of skin. And then and there's the rest a little of bit of body, blood. In, incidentally, there's a little bit of blood. I don't know if you can notice, but a little bit of blood pooling around Saturn's hands. Around his hands, yes. Yes. Yeah. So it gives you the sense that he's been holding onto this really tightly in this way for a while. And the, whatever blood has been spilled has trickled around him, and he's just tearing strips off this figure with his mouth by eating it. The thing I notice, so I've seen this in the flesh, as it were, so not just in a reproduction, and the thing I noticed and just couldn't forget were the eyes. Mm. And the eyes are, these are the eyes of Saturn, obviously, because the figure, apart from not having arms, is also headless. Yeah. Uh, the head has been torn off, presumably devoured by this point. So the thing to note there is whatever this figure is, it's already dead. Saturn has moved beyond the instrumental here. Saturn is no longer just killing something or someone, but is there's a kind of manic, perhaps psychopathic, maybe they're opposite things. Um, there's a frenzy here. Mm. I don't know if it's a panic or maybe it's a desperation. But the the way in which he's clutching this thing, the way he is continuing to tear at its flesh by biting at it, even after it's dead, and then the eyes, the level of desperation is, it's unsettling. It's really, really unsettling. And I can only encourage you to, if you ever get the chance and find yourself in Madrid, to, to go to the Prado to see it, because... At least to me, that came across so much more vividly in the original. I'd, I'd sort of seen this painting before and thought, oh, okay. But it was only when I saw the original and I I, I really was stopped in my tracks. Hmm. So that's can what I, think, I notice. I, I yeah. mean, everything I mentioned there has aspects that we can go into, but yes. are there things you want to add? Yes, can subtract? I just pick up just a couple of very brief things? Firstly, it's worth pointing out that in Peter Paul Rubin's version of 
the myth of Saturn eating his son. Which comes before Goya's. Which comes before. It's much cleaner. In some respects, it's more visceral because you, I mean, the child that is being eaten is, is an infant. Um, the flesh is being torn. But importantly, there's a degree of menace on Saturn's face, and he's looking down at the screaming child, which makes it both cleaner, a little bit more sterile, but also far more menacing. There's a malevolence to it. There's a willful extinguishment of life. And that contrasts, I think, massively with Goya's Saturn. You can also say the distress on the child. In in, in Rubens, Rubens, whereas, whereas here it is just object that is being devoured. And can I also say, I feel like there's something, I don't know if we see Rubens one the same way. I see something almost perfunctory about Saturn in Rubens one. He's doing this because he has to, or he feels he has to. Ah, we're looking at it very differently. Yeah. I don't see see a a special intensity in his face. Certainly not after you looked at Goya's. No, there's not, there may not be an intensity but there is an intentionality. There yeah. is a deliberateness. So he's doing In it other for words, a reason. He is doing it for a reason, Whereas yes. I think Goya, Goya's Saturn goes beyond the reason he's doing it for. Yeah. He may still be doing it for a reason, and that may be informing his behavior, but he's well past the reason. This figure is dead. Hmm. So can I just pick up a couple things, which all kind of gravitate or revolve, I think, beautifully around what you've already described. If you didn't know that this was entitled Saturn Eating His Son. And this is an aspect that's kind of, that's polarized a great many people who have written about this painting. Because it's not Goya's title. Because it's not Goya's title. There is something disconcerting about the object that is being grasped by Saturn. Mm. The way that the hands clutch just above the hips create a form in the buttocks and legs that make it look like a female form. Yep. It's so therefore undeniable, not his son. And therefore not his son. And so this could be, and I mean, we know, for instance, that Goya is writing after a period when Napoleon's uh, soldiers and French mercenaries mercilessly, brutally invaded Spain. There was sexual violence on an extraordinary scale. Uh, there was dismemberment. There was torture, impaling, rape. Um, So there is something here, there is the clutching of a body. And I think the crucial thing is whether we regard the body as a child or whether we regard the body, or sorry, not child, as an offspring, let's say. Whether we regard the body as offspring or whether we regard the body as gendered as female. The point is there is only one fully masculine figure in the painting, and that is Saturn. And it's Saturn before whom everything else is inferior, whether that be offspring or whether that be woman. I think there's something there that's disconcerting and somewhat unavoidable. But the most striking thing for me is the fact that this figure is emerging out of darkness. You're right that Saturn is hunched. He's almost crouched. You would almost get the sense that he's concealing himself, that he's hiding. I think you could be excused for saying there's a degree of shame that's being communicated oh, in this painting. Oh, that's interesting. I don't read that. In other words, this is not for public view. Yeah. He's maybe taking refuge someplace and devouring. Yeah, he could be a in a cave. Plaything. It could be a cave. But then there's something else that's going on with the darkness. So... Uh, you might want to say something about Goya's other black paintings. These are paintings that were painted directly onto the plaster of the internal walls of his house just outside of Madrid. These were paintings that were imaginative scapes that weren't representative in the same way. I say some of his earlier paintings. I think they're called nightmare fantasy, aren't they? Nightmare fantasy probably captures precisely it. And uh, many people make kind of associations between Saturn and these other kind of, not all of them black in the same way. But for me, the thing that really stood out, the immediate association for me, were the 82 sketches that Goya did uh, during and in the immediate aftermath of the French invasion of Spain. There are sketches that are sometimes referred to as disasters of war. I don't know if you know how much, how much you know about the etymology even of the word disaster. I mean, disaster means de-starred. 
it means released from the stars, alienated from the stars. The stars being the thing that convey fate or will or intentionality or meaning upon the universe. Uh, stars are the objects of fate. They are the things to which we are tethered, that control our lives above our lives. To be de-starred, to be thrown into a disaster, is to live in the aftermath of something. It's to be uncoupled from meaning, from sense, from history. It's to be thrown into the void, into the darkness without reprieve. And it's striking to me that over the course of these disaster paintings of scenes from the war that Goya sketched, what became increasingly prominent, I mean, there are dismemberments of the same kind that we see in this painting. Uh, French mercenaries uh, dismembering Spanish resistors. There are scenes of torture, of impalement, of seizure. Um, and what becomes increasingly prominent over the course of these sketches that he did are these large portions of blackness. Blackness into which, say, bodies are being thrown. In other words, the blackness of a mass grave. And what's obviously, it seems to me, being conveyed there is there's no bottom to it. The graves keep receiving their dead, and it never says enough, enough. There's a kind of insatiability. But then you also see Goya increasingly portraying the skies as not a blank, not a blank where there's no sketching, but as an absence, as a black. It's almost as if the skies themselves represent providence turning its back on this poor situation. So here you have Saturn emerging out of the blackness. And it's not just the parts of him that are emerging out of the blackness that strike me. If I can put it this way, Waleed, it's the bits that remain in blackness, that remain dark. So, for instance, the thing that's immediately visible is his mouth. His mouth is almost like a bottomless mass grave. Mm. Uh, his mouth has never emerged from the darkness. It's simply receiving. Um, uh, if you were to portray, and I think the painting is all the more powerful for not portraying it, if you were to portray, say, a pile of bones or bodies or scraps being uh, left in the background, it would be completely fitting. Um, the idea being that more and more and more is going into this mass grave of a mouth yeah, but that has never quite much, emerged. Though. It would also be too much. The eyes, it's so funny. He could have done the eyes black, simply black, as he did in other paintings from around the same black paintings period, uh, vacant gazes or even malevolent gazes. But instead, Goya wants you to see the eyes in the backdrop to the darkness. And again, the thing that strikes me here is that when he, in his Disasters of War series, he would typically have these bodies, these corpses, these dismembered husks of former human beings. And then you would have French mercenaries or Napoleonic soldiers gazing at them contemptuously, disinterestedly. There's a coldness there. Mm. Here, Goya wants you to see the eyes. The eyes are ravenous. The eyes don't have intentionality, but there is a desperation behind them. They aren't part of the blackness. They emerge out of the blackness. There's a life force there and the desire to, pres to preserve the force that there is, the life that there is in those eyes. Let me just make reference to one last thing, though. There's another part of Saturn's body that's black. If you look down towards the bottom right-hand side of the painting, you'll see that his stomach is concave. I, I think it's conveying hunger, isn't it? It's kind it's of, yeah, emaciated. This is the... Emaciated. What's interesting is that not only do you have the darkness around his emaciated stomach, but you also have the darkness around his groin. Kind of. Do we need to well, talk about this? Let me just make one point, and then I'll leave everything else okay. on this particular point too. Right. So there is a darkness between his legs. What's funny here is that the figure of Saturn, but also the annual celebrations of Saturnalia, are associated with fecundity. Not just feasting, although it is certainly that, and so you have a certain appropriateness, a kind of diabolical appropriateness. But there's also fecundity of offspring, of life-giving. The myth of Saturn is that he hears tell of a prophecy that his son will replace him. And in order to forfend the outcome of that prophecy, he devours his own son. It's not just to hold the prophecy at bay, 
but it's also by this kind of devilish feast to endlessly, he hopes, prolong his own life. So not only here is there a kind of diabolical feasting on the corpse of that, which ought to be the most precious to any father, to any parent, but then there's also the fact that it's as if his loins, his genitalia, are themselves trapped in non-generativity, in non-fecundity, by the devouring, hence the darkness of his mouth. There's also the corresponding self-annihilation of his own possibility of reproducing, in other words, of giving life to the world. So there I think you have, yes, he's emerging out of the darkness, but that darkness is alienating. He's entirely cut off from everything else. The darkness is ravenous. You keep pouring bodies in and it never, ever, ever gives up. But also the darkness can't produce anything. It's non-generative. Nothing good can come out of it. It simply absorbs more and more and more into its desperate will to live. Yeah. So that's great because that's exactly where I, I mean, not with those words, but that's where I end up with this painting. But I think we need to- really interesting. We need to note a really important footnote. So you've noticed that his genitalia basically is non-existent in the painting. It's just a black area. It recedes into the shadows. Hmm. There is another theory Yes, that actually, is. it's the very opposite of that. Yep. And that the uh, an earlier draft of the painting actually had a semi-erect penis there, yes. visible. And I didn't know this uh, until I read about it. So when I saw the painting, I didn't know this. But now, as you look to that area, there is this sort of flash of white that emerges from it. And I don't know what that is. I don't know if that is meant to be a reference to his genitals or that's just a part of his, I don't know, like his oblique or something that's catching the light somehow, I don't know. It's telling that the semi-erect penis was painted over at some point, either he removed it or someone else did. We don't really know. And here we should know, we don't even know this is satin. Mm, interesting. That's just the title that was given to it later by people who thought that's what it was about. But this has given rise to a whole lot of other readings. I want you to imagine for a moment it's not satin, or actually, even if it is satin. And as he's devouring this female-looking figure, Mm. he has a semi-erect penis. Mm. That's a totally different painting now. Yes, it is. That's, I don't know what Goy is intending with it, but to me that starts to talk about a kind of relationship, an almost insatiable relationship between violence and lust. Uh, Or something else. Not so much the relationship between violence and lust, but rather acquisitiveness and possession as a way of reinforcing or prolonging one's life. But there's got to be masculinity involved. Yes, yes. So, and look, I'm not the first person to make the lust connection. There are critics and historians who've done that, but... That's right. So I'm not claiming originality here, but that's a totally different painting if that's the detail, right? But I'm not sure it's the same affect. In what way? Um, one of the more uncomfortable aspects, I think, of a great deal of ancient Greco-Roman culture is that uh, maleness is relative. To be male is to be active. To be male is to possess a degree of honor and renown and reputation which means that the relationships in which a male finds uh, himself are relative and diminished. So to humiliate another man, to defeat them in battle, to take away their honor, is to shove them down a kind of spectrum Mm -hmm. that has masculinity on the one side and then the various grades of degradation. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we, we don't have to talk about what there is on the far scale So I think in either respect, if one sees a degree of eroticism here or if one sees a degree of starvation, the point is the same. The point is... I I wouldn't say eroticism, by the way. But anyway, go on. uh, Yeah, eroticism is probably, yeah. Because it's not sensual. No, it's not. No, it's not. That's the connection with violence I'm making. Okay. Anyway, can, can I just note the sort of other interpretations really quickly? 
So the, the idea of the times in which Goya was doing this, there's also the Spanish Inquisition going yes. on, which we haven't mentioned. Which was, in, incidentally, Waleed, I mean, he drew that too in the disasters of war. Yeah. So there were three sequences. One was the uh, French invasion of Spain and the infliction of unimaginable, monstrous injury on human beings. And then there was the period uh, of the uh, 1811 and 1812 famine that ravaged, ravaged Madrid. And you can see here, hmm. can't you, something of the ravenousness. The yeah. Exactly. And then, and then the final stage is the counter-revolutionary movement of Fernando VII, his purges, his inquisitions, uh, which Goya regarded as not a countervailing violence, but hmm. the prolongation of the same. It was Violence right. begetting violence. It was monstrousness begetting monstrousness. And therefore an autocratic Spanish state, right? That's right. So this is where a whole lot of interpretations that either have nothing to do with Saturn at all emerge. Is a state devouring its young. Yeah, so this is the figure of the Spanish state devouring its own people, mm, That's right. for example. And the darkness might be part of that. Or this is the French Revolution. This is Napoleon. Mm. Like there's, a, there's all these sort of interpretations. Mm. And Goya is silent on it, which is the great and terrible thing about it. Um, but can we proceed as though it's Saturn? Mm. To me, I think where this all ends up, this was my first impression when I saw it, and, and having thought about it more and read bits and pieces, I think it still remains my impression. And that is, and I think it fits very neatly with the observations you make about the blackness of it, the, the almost infinite nature of the depravity and so on. It's about the unquenchable thirst for power. Hmm. And I think this is true whether it or is... Or life? Or life? No, power. Okay. We because because Saturn's concern is that his son will overthrow him. Hmm. It's the fear of obsolescence or finitude, mortality. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that it is... Well, it reads very powerfully to me if it's about power. Sorry to use that word twice in different senses. Hmm. <laughs> um because that makes the desperation even more poignant. And the lack of instrumentality. There's no instrumental reason for him to continue tearing away at this body because it's already dead. The threat's extinguished. The blackness is infinite. He's not even preserving anything now. There's not even a magnificent kingdom to preserve. It's not in the service of anyone. He himself is this decrepit figure that mm. seems to have no... Well, you, you mentioned fertility. Perhaps that's a way of putting it. There's nothing productive, it seems, about him particularly. It's almost like there is nothing being protected except power itself. And mm. the desperation with which he tears into this says something to me, because if power is at the heart of this myth, his desperation to preserve it, even when there's nothing actually left to preserve, mm. just strikes me as an incredibly powerful statement. And that's one that you can then extend to, whether it be the Spanish state of the time, or you could, if you really want to, read into it the way that partisan politics operates or whatever. In other words, victory, the fact of power, is the thing that matters more than any question of what one might do with it. The idea of relinquishing power, because that might be the natural order of things or the beneficial thing to happen or whatever, is so unpalatable to, let's say, human beings, even though Saturn's a mythological god, but is so unpalatable that we, we become Saturn. <laughs> once, mm. once there is something being threatened, a loss of power, we would rather the diminishment of the thing over which we hold power than to relinquish that power, all told. Mm. Two very quick things will lead. Make them very it quick because we need to bring our guest in. It seems to me that you can read the last two seasons of Succession as a commentary on exactly. Saturn eating his son. Yep. Uh, and the fact that Waystar Royco is a decrepit kingdom hmm. that nonetheless matters everything. It, it just, I, I think there's something interesting there. Which makes this the kind of eternal theme, I think, that makes it powerful. It does. It's probably why the I read it one, The one thing that I would stress, though, I think it's important that this is his son. Hmm. And you, you could say that, okay, this is a state devouring its own children. But when this is something to which one's life is connected, to which it owes its life on one's own self, for the fear that that is going to flourish and thrive, and that therefore my life will be worse as a result of it taking up more space, more flourishing in the world, and therefore it must be extinguished. 
it's not just, I, I kind of accept what you're saying about power, but I think it's also the striving, the raging against the very possibility of obsolescence. It's the most perverted form of viewing life as a sponge that has to suck everything in, that has to wrench every drop of enjoyment out of life versus life as something more like a watering can that is able to then pour itself out for the sake of the flourishing of others and then can let itself go in the knowledge, even if only reaffirmed belatedly, that one's life has been, however poor, a blessing to others. So I, I think the fact of the kinship in yeah. the consumption, yeah, yeah. I think there's something there that can't be completely missed in the uh, diagnosis. No, and that's inherent to the myth. Yeah, that's right. And since we're discussing a painting, Scott, I think it's best we go to a novelist. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> our guest is one of our dear friends on this show. Uh, Christos Chilkas, how do you describe Christos? He's one of Australia's great writers, an award-winning novelist. He's an essayist, a film critic, a playwright. But none of that he's matters. He's a Richmond Christos, supporter. That's, I mean, he's a Richmond supporter. Yeah, yeah. What really matters, Christos, is that you're here with us today. Thanks so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. Oh, absolute pleasure. God, it's uh, fascinating to come into this because both of you have talked about a different relationship I'll have with uh, this painting. Can I say for me, it is unbearable. That's the word I'm going to use. And I'm, I've been fortunate like you, um, Walid, I've, I've been to the Prado and, and, and been before it. And it is unbearable. Like there is something in the face of Saturn that is deeply frightening. Um, when you were talking about the root of the word disaster, Scott, and distarring, um, I'm going to talk about a relationship I had with... The painting, once I got to know it from reproductions, because as a young person, that's that's how I first came across it. And I remember it came to my mind at two points in my youth. One was when I looked at myself in the mirror in the middle of drug addiction and I saw that it felt I had fallen away from light. And Uh, I recalled that painting and the unbearable nature of that painting. And I hope I can say this on air, like uh, I think... Uh, another time years and years ago but in that lost world of kind of unhappiness where I was looking at a lot of porn and then suddenly saw my reflection on the screen and the same Uh. recalling happened. So I think that there is something in that painting that talks to a deep terror we have in us as human beings of being lost to the light. To, I'm, I'm trying to think of a word that would encompass that. But also being self-debased. So debasement, depravity. I don't know if any word can do justice to the extent of what I experience or experience in those, those states where I lead. And I think that is what is so powerful about the painting, right? So, so could... Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, 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 go for it. Could this be a painting of addiction? Is, is, is Saturn the addict devouring himself here? So that's one, I mean, I think the thing about a great work like the Goya painting is that all the, all that you talked about is possible in it, right? So the other story I will tell you about it is that when I was a really young kid, and this conversation is is, is, is really still vivid in my head, that my, it was during the uh, uh, Hunter period in Greece, and we're here in mm. Melbourne, and I'm just mm. a young kid and I'm listening to the adults around the table, and my father said... Greece always eats its children. That's what Greece is. And my uncle Costa said, that's what Europe is. And Mm. um, when I first encountered the Goya painting, that conversation just came flooding back to me. So I see the political resonance or the kind of the question of the themes of power that you're talking about in that painting as well. And I don't think it's an accident either. I mean, what, you know, to give the listeners an understanding that so Goya is, in a way, in his semi-exile from the, the Spanish court, right, mm-hmm. because the monarchy has been reinstated. It's a really uh, the divine right of kings. Uh, he's under suspicion because he was working for the French government. He has seen the most abject things that people can do in, in war. And I think that was my what my father was referring to in terms of the, mm. the devouring. That's that's what he saw as a young young person in Greece. And then he goes to this place outside Madrid and he does the black paintings and they fill his walls. 
and he shows no one. He shows no one, and it, but this is what he's looking at, right? This is this the, is it was this was in his dining room. I understand. I know. Can you I, I'm trying to put myself in that state because we've seen the paintings, right? And it's not. Um, I mean, I think the most powerful for me is Saturn, but um, there's the Witcher Sabbath. They are just. Yes. There, it is the abyss, right? To to use that Nietzschean sense of the the abyss, and he's sitting in that, and I can't also help reading that in it that. He's also someone who has been influenced by Enlightenment ideas. You know, he has been a supporter of the revolution and is, for me, those ideas and my relationship to that painting informed a novel I wrote called Dead Europe that was partly set during the Greek Civil War, which is also about kind of when, what is it to realise these ideals that you had faith in have completely been destroyed and turned around and eating themselves, like kind of mm. the Enlightenment idea. I don't know how much, I mean, I'm not an art historian and I'm not uh, a biographer of Goya, but I wonder how much the notion of the terror was playing into mm. to, um, what he was painting or experiencing. Uh, so, so can I just mention it's two very, very brief things? We haven't touched on it yet. I don't know how significant it was, but it is worth saying that by 18... 1821, Goya had been, for all intents and purposes, almost entirely deaf for the better part of two and a bit decades. From an illness, too. He seemed to be From an quite sickly as a yeah. person. So his experience of life was inflected S- deeply by that. But, but more than that, what his friends kept commenting on was the extent to which that was isolating for Goya. And you can imagine that, not, not having those, the mediated mm. connections between human beings of sound. Um, it creates other forms of reliance. It's also important to me, I think, Christos, you made reference to the Enlightenment. You know, Immanuel Kant associated the stars with the objectivity, the universality of moral law. What does it mean, the moral law that places unarguable demands that are not open for deliberation or negotiation? What does it mean then for these characters, not just in the midst of the atrocities of the Spanish-French war, uh, but also here, Saturn himself? What does it mean for these people to exist in a world without stars? All there is, is the isolation of this interaction between human bodies. All there is are these tableaus, these scenes that are cut off from history from one another. One of the things that Jean-Emery always described is that no victims of torture have the same experience. No, that's, yeah. Torture is singular. And so when you have these scenes of a French mercenary, as in plate 36 of the Disasters of War, French mercenary looking at a hanging, partially dismembered body, hanging in a tree in front of him, lounging back, looking with a degree of satisfaction, cool contempt at this body. There is something, there is a lawlessness that is there, that is every bit as monstrous and terrifying, that is starless, that is disastered as, as this painting of Saturn. What fascinates me, what fascinates me, disturbs me is the word about Saturn devouring his um, children is, when I said unbearable, I could also have said it's hopelessness. So when I look at the Disasters of, Law, of War series, I am moved and I'm so terribly moved by what is documented. But can I make a relationship that is so different to Saturn, which is one of my favourite paintings of all time, which is the 3rd of May, 1808. Ah, yes. Right, and this is my first encounter as a young kid in doing art in a suburban high school. And that, and again, seeing it just in reproduction, but being, again, so terribly moved by... Can you moment. describe it, but, Yes, so it is, um, there was an uh, uprising in Madrid as the French forces were coming in. The uh, uprising was quashed and the, the people in the uprising were shot, slaughtered. And it is the moment before death. There is a man in a white shirt, arms outstretched. His, um, his compatriots have been slaughtered by the, the riflemen and the look of disbelief and Terror and anguish in his face is so vividly captured in that painting. And look, I'm someone who grew up with images of war and horror. You know, war, World at War was on television when I was a kid. But I had become, in a sense, immune to them. And it was, you know, just actually looking at this plate that I was 
made to experience a, a sense of the, the, the true shock and um, inhumanity of, of these experiences. But what is – sorry, Scott, I'm just going to – because I think no, this is important, wonderful. right? I tore out a, the picture of um, a 3rd of May, 1808, and I carried it around me for years in mm-hmm. shared households, and you know, in my bedroom, uh, on top of my desk, as a reminder, it was not unbearable. There was another, there was a very, very different relationship that I had to that painting. What terrifies me about Saturn no, is that I, that can't I can't do that. Do that. I, and in fact, I do remember years ago coming into a house of someone who was a very, very broken human being and he had it on his wall and I knew that he was going to suffer terribly. Like I just felt wow. that sense because you can't, no matter how great a painting it is, on the other, you know, because uh, I'm a film head, the only other work kind of has a comparable sense of terror for me is uh, Pasolini's Salo, 120 Days oh of Sodom, right? That, yeah. that, that something has been revealed that is not only about the politics or the, the, the history, but it's something that goes deeper into who we are as human beings. And I think that's Can why I, I had that response to addiction. Oh, my God. Just before Scott jumps in, mm, mm. given what you've just said about that painting... Can you describe that moment where you saw yourself in the mirror and you saw Saturn in yourself? Uh, just that I was, uh, and I think that is in the painting, which I don't think I saw Walid when I first encountered it as a reproduction, is misery. Like the, the, that, that I saw the depravity, I saw the loss, I saw that, that absence of light that I was referring to, but I also saw misery. And is there something in the fact that Saturn's misery and perhaps yours is achieved, if that's the right (laughs) verb, in the process of servicing what you want. Yes, I think it is. Saturn just wants to protect his position, right? Addiction is the same idea. You're you're servicing a desire, really. I think that the... And this is difficult because um, I think all these things are much more complicated that can be articulated, you know. Um, But I think there is... That sense of desiring something so much means that you can give over your will and you can give over your consciousness. And I think give over your, what for me, uh, and I know this is contentious, is my humanity, right? Mm-hmm. Like to to service it, whether it be whatever the form the addiction is. And addiction can be uh, a drug, it can be power, it can be sex, it can be... And I think that is why that painting continues to terrify us because we can all see that. We don't have to be autocrats. We don't, you know, yeah. we, we know that within ourselves and that's why we have that relationship um, to that painting and it's no, I mean, you immediately got what I meant by you can't have it on your wall. Mm, and so totally. to think of Goya sitting there night after night. I don't know what his really, state must have been. Absolute. And that's why I think, you know, the, the, a sense of brokenness. Mm. You know, um, I don't, and I'm again. I'm not going to pretend a, a knowledge of the biography, but I can say with a confidence that it must be a form of brokenness. Mm. But it's a paradox of desire, isn't it? Yes, because Saturn covets power, but in the end, power owns him. Yeah. Yes, precisely. Ex- exactly. Can I just go back to the third of May, Christos? I could not be happier that you brought it up for two reasons. Three reasons, as a matter of fact. Firstly, the sky is black. Yes. The same way that we've been describing. The sky is black. And it's not just nighttime. The sky is black and utterly devoid of stars. There is one shockingly white thing in the painting, and that is the clean white shirt of the man with his arms outstretched who's just about to be shot. There are two sets of eyes that are visible in the painting. Two sets of eyes. One is the person beside the man who's about to be shot, who's looking with the same... It's There's there's something different going on in this man's eye. Not not the one who's about to be shot, but the other one. There's, There's anticipation, there's apprehension. But the one who's about to be shot, his eyes are the same as Saturn's. So the way he's positioned... So the soldiers, their eyes are invisible. All you see is the rifles. So it's not coldness, it may well be duty. 
But regardless, you're not supposed to identify. You're not supposed to wonder about the intention, about the state of mind, about the humanity of the people about to do the shooting. You know what else they are, though? It's very clean and slick. What they're wearing, there's no texture. That's right. It's it's machine-like. There's an efficiency. They are a machine. Yes. Yeah. Yep. They are a machine, hence the dropped bodies that are all around. And the only and texture mind, is in that man's shirt. That's right. And, yeah. and then you look at his eyes. What is it? There's sadness, undoubtedly. There's not anticipation. I think there's a degree of resignation. And disbelief, there is a moment like this is going, that is what I see in that painting, that this cannot be happening to. Which is is why, for instance, the primary affect of Jean-Emery, the um, Jewish philosopher who was tortured mercilessly, mercilessly during the Second World War, he said the feeling that he left with after leaving the camp was, how could a human being do that to another? He says the primary affect was disbelief that this is something that a human being could do to another. Here's here's the point. It's not to change the subject from Saturn to 3rd of May. I'd like to suggest to you both that the look in the eyes of the man who's about to be shot, which we are undoubtedly supposed to be looking at in the 3rd of May, the look in the eyes is the same as the look in the eyes of Saturn. Which is why, Walid, when you said that, yes, what's being communicated, the affect that's being represented here is power, yes, but it's also someone who is in the grip of a power, which might suggest, aren't we supposed to look at Saturn with a degree of pity? I think the moment you do that and see the misery I was talking about, then pity is possible. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that is... But it's not, it's not pity in the sense of condescension. No, no. It's, it's, that, it's that this man of all men is in the most... Not, again, I'm worried about terms like abject or monstrous or broken. He's in the grip of something to which everything in our hearts would want to have him released. I mean, I think that, I think, Scott, in my relationship to those paintings, uh, what I would say about, you're right, there is something in the eyes of both those figures that reflects back on ourselves. But in a way, because in 3rd of May there is the machine, you, you, yeah, know, kind of, you yeah. can kind of go, this is, I know what position to take here, that I am mm. for the man about to face the, the, mm. his death uh, and I am against this machine. I have nothing to anchor me in that relationship to yeah. um, Saturn. You know, I can see the same misery but terrifies me in a very, very different way because I'm I'm ruthless in in terms of a relationship of what what I feel because I think it goes somewhere really deep inside a fear we all have of what it means to be inhuman, Mm. you know, because Saturn in that painting is inhuman. The political Mm. historic circumstances in 3rd of May 1808 have reduced this figure to inhumanity, but he is not inhuman to us. But that is what we see. We see, again, I don't know, I don't know any other work quite like Saturn that makes us see that Mm. in in, in such a clear way. I think that's why it is unbearable. But where, where do the two of you see the role of finitude in Saturn? I mean, it is, it is significant, is it not, that Saturn is aged, he is decrepit, and that the body that he's devouring is visibly young. Yeah. There, there is a, a holding off of mortality. There is a desire to desperately prolong one's life, even if it's a cursed life, even if it's a half-life. I think that's, and again, you know, this is the, uh, uh, I'm always going to argue for this in art, that you actually, we can't explain it. We cannot go into Goya's consciences. We can't know what, what it is. I think the politics of and the history and the experiences of the war that he had been through and the political uh, situation he'd been through is reflected in the painting, even if it is to use, you know, to, to say it is unconscious. Is it Saturn? I think I've always thought it's Saturn because also Saturn castrated his father, Mm-hmm. That's that's, right. that's a part of the myth as well. So this, and maybe I'm just being influenced by my father's words and my uncle Costa's words. And, you know, before my my father passed away, because the 
crisis was happening in Greece. He said it again. That was mm-hmm. near, near, near his end. You know, Greece is doing it again. Europe is doing it again. It's eating its children. So, and when you were talking about the, the is it that he has no genitals or is it that the, the erection has been somehow wiped away or censored? Uh, or changed his mind. mind or whatever it, it yeah. was. That is something that is being communicated about power. Mm, and, and and in terms of your question, Scott, that is what generations do to, you know, who do we send to war? Mm. We send mm, our children. That's, right. that's who we slaughter. Christos has just made Saturno a commentary on the housing crisis. <laughs> well <done>. <laughs> <laughs> we got there eventually. Well done, everybody. I just wish it was that easy, Wally, because that's the thing. You know, when you hear some of the debate, you just want to go look at that painting, actually seriously Mm. look at the unbearable and then don't come up with platitudes, Mm. (laughs) you know, about what it means to be human and to be in this world. That is what is, again, frightening about that work. Christos, you've been magnificent in the way we've approached this. It's been so great. Can I say something really quickly? Yes. To me, I only discovered this kind of doing a bit of... uh, Homework for this show. There is a, a charcoal drawing that Goya did near the end of his life. He was exiled in France mm-hmm. and it's called I'm Still Learning. Yeah, and it's an old man who looks like Father Time. It's a self-portrait. And I'm just I'm just putting it there as so different to um, Satono. It is hopeful. It's yeah. an old man at the end of his life. He's, de- mm-hmm. he's decrepit but not in that depraved way, not in that miserable way, not in that anti-light way. He yeah, is. Yeah. And, um, and I just want to, that's a painting I could very happily stick to, a stick on my wall. Unless you got one. Yeah. <laughs> Christos will accept one Goya painting. <laughs> that's very good. <laughs> and oh, there's so much to there's say. There's so many. Can I, I, when you go to the people, if you have the chance to go to the Prada, to sit in front of those Goyas and then, and then to go to the Reno Sophia and see Guernica. Yes. Also, I think... Yes. Goya's work speaks to to Picasso's work um, in an incredible, incredibly powerful way, and it's astonishing, isn't it? It's something that painting can still do, mm. even though they're such opposites. Guernica yeah, is this massive think, piece. Yeah, this Saturno's quite little. Yeah, it, one's all action, one's actually very confined. Yeah, uh, we're out of time. I'm afraid. I'd love to keep going. It was an absolute pleasure, my friends. No, the pleasure was all ours. I think that went all right, Scott. We took on oh. painting and we, we got to the end. We did it. So well it. done. Um, Christos Chalkas, our guest for this week's uh, edition of The Minefield. An unusual one. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you could keep up with the paintings being referenced and just looking it up on your phone or whatever it was you were doing because it might help. Um, if it's a podcast, you can go back and see if you can do it again. But we'll be back with more regular programming, shall we say, if such a thing exists with The Minefield next week. If you had a bit of a hard time keeping track of the various paintings and sketches that we were making reference to, you can always go to the Minefield website. We'll include in the program description links to the paintings, the sketches. You can linger with them. You can look them over at your leisure. Just search for The Minefield on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.